0: as well. Hear the word of the Lord. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag, therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jer- uh, Jer- Jeromalites, and against, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor win- woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us, and say, so David has done." Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, even for the parts that... Maybe don't immediately strike us as, as relevant to our lives. We know that all scripture is breathed out by you and is, and is profitable for our growth in holiness. And so would you use this time to teach us and comfort us and direct our lives according to your will. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, on the surface, this text may seem like a bit of a lull in the narrative, sort of this odd digression in David's rise as king of Israel. And it may seem even to us a little bit away from the point of our Christian walk. You know, there's not much of a moral example here to follow. There's not even a mention of God at all in this whole passage. But actually these very details are part of what form the context from which the point of this passage emerges which is that even in dark days, God's kingdom is advancing. See, these are, on the whole, dark days for David. These are days of weariness, faithlessness, displacement, threat. These are days that he probably considers to be a sizable digression in his life. And yet by the time we get to the end of this passage, we learn that actually God has done some real good work through this digression. And you have probably probably lived or are maybe living right now digression days yourself, dark days where life is not what you thought it would be or what you'd like it to be or what you think it should be. You know, Maybe things are in disarray in your life because of maybe because of your sin, maybe because of the sin of another, Maybe just they just are. <laughs> Maybe you're waiting for something and you are weary and you're tired of waiting. How do we move through dark days? What strength can we find when God seems distant, when His purposes seem dormant, when our hopes are deferred, or when, or when we are just plain sad and at our wit's end? How do we move? through dark days. That's what I'd like to talk about this morning, and the point I'd like to make is that even in dark days, God's kingdom is advancing. Even in dark days, God's kingdom is advancing. It's durable. It holds up to circumstances that seem to our eyes to work against it. You can stress test the kingdom of God with anything, and it holds up. It's durable. It is always rolling on, and that gives us courage for our dark days. So this morning, I want to talk about three specific aspects of of, of the the durability of God's kingdom, its sturdiness in dark days, and and these are, are the three. First, God's kingdom advances despite our faithlessness. God's kingdom advances despite our faithlessness. Second, God's kingdom advances despite our displacement. Despite our displacement. And third, God's kingdom advances despite our vulnerabilities. It advances despite our vulnerabilities. And for this reason, it is a durable kingdom such that we can have confidence that God's purposes are prevailing even in the dark days of our lives. So let's let's look at this first point. God's kingdom advances despite our faithlessness. And I'm getting this primarily from the first paragraph of our text. You know, it's interesting. Up until this point, David has been overwhelmingly confident in God's ability to protect him. You know, from his going out against Goliath to fight Goliath, to his battles against the Philistines, to his efforts at making peace with Saul, David has trusted God to save him and to deliver him. But here, he falters. Look at verse one. It says that David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines, Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. David has had enough. He's been on the run from Saul for some time now, and he's fed up, and he's right that Saul just won't quit. That much is clear by now. But where David gets it wrong is that he says he will perish one day by the hand of Saul, which by inference means he does not believe that God will protect him and make good on his promise to give the kingdom to David. Even though history shows time and time again, God has protected him. And so what David does is he takes matters into his own hands. There's a lot of I and me in that verse. He moves to protect himself by fleeing into enemy territory. David says in his heart, Saul will kill me and God won't save me. And then he crosses into enemy territory. And that is the basic movement of faithlessness and sin. God won't, so I will. God can't, I can God can't protect me, I'll protect myself. God won't give me joy, I'll make my own joy. And not only is this wrong, but it's also short-sighted. Because we all come to God through an encounter of his saving power. And so in faithlessness, we end up returning to that which God has saved us from. And in fact, we see that pattern here. David doesn't flee to just some random Philistine city, but to Gath. Perhaps you remember Gath, it's the town that Goliath was from. And if you remember back in 1 Samuel 17, David's defeat of Goliath is really what begins his whole rise to stardom, and it was confirmation that God was with him. There he had great confidence in God's ability to protect him, but now his soul is weary. He's been chased so long. And even though God has protected him t- uh, several times, he is losing faith. The dark days have swallowed up the bright days, and he flees to gas. And so we see in David the common dynamics of faithlessness. A soul that's weary and fatigued. A soul that's impatient. A forgetfulness of God's past deliverance and faithfulness. An overconfidence in our own ability to protect ourselves, a lack of faith in God's promises to care for us and to carry out his purposes. Perhaps those dynamics sound familiar to you. How many of us have taken matters into our own hands when we are done waiting for God to do what we think he should do? How many of us forget all the good that God has done for us and believe that we need to take it from here? How many of us pacify our weariness, our discouragement with sin? All of us. Because we are a forgetful, faithless people. And yet God remains faithful. Even in David's faithfulness, God remained faithful. The purposes of God prevailed. Because actually, David's plan works. Though Achish is an enemy of of Israel, he and Saul are on such bad terms that it's likely that that Achish received David as somewhat of a friend because he's the enemy of his enemy. And the result of all that is that David's life is preserved. Which is an essential aspect of the future promises of God. That one from the line of David would arise to be the true and perfect and everlasting king. And so David, so God is preserving Israel's king, David. And in David, our future king. God's kingdom is durable. It advances. Even despite our faithlessness. Because God is faithful and true to his promises and his purposes. And so that's the first thing we see about the durability of the kingdom is that it advances despite our faithlessness, despite even the dark days we bring upon ourselves. The second way in which it's durable is that it advances despite our displacement. Despite our displacement, that is when your life seems to be going nowhere. Or going even in the wrong direction, indeed, even then, the kingdom is still moving forward. And we see this in the middle paragraph of our passage where David deceives uh, King Achish into giving him territory sort of in the outskirts of town. Now, a brief word on David's behavior in this passage. Here is a, a great example of, of one rule of Bible reading, especially when you're in narrative which is that just because the good guy does something, and just because it works, doesn't mean it's commended as a moral example to follow. Not everything in the Bible is a moral recommendation or example. Most of David's behavior in this passage is not worthy of imitation. So for example, here in verse five, David is feigning humility when he says, why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? He's trying to to lower himself in Achish's eyes and present himself as a non-threat. You know, hey, look, just let me be out in the country and out of your way, and you won't have to worry about anything. But the whole reason David does that, as we'll see in the next paragraph, is so he can raid neighboring territories without being caught. And so David is being deceptive here. And although he's going to make use of his freedom in the outskirts of town, David is being deceptive. And yet, God works through it. Which is part of the point here, that God is working even in David's displacement and exile, even through David's deception, to advance the kingdom. And the way in which the kingdom is advancing here is that God is expanding Israel's rule in the land. Because actually this, this territory of Ziklag that David is, is given by uh, King Achish it actually already belonged technically to Israel. They just had not yet taken control of it. So way back in the book of Joshua, when God's people entered the promised land, the land that they were supposed to go in and possess and drive away their enemies, that land is divided among the tribes and the area of Ziklag was divided between the tribes of Simeon and Judah. And so what's happening here is that through David's displacement in enemy territory, he actually comes to assume control of the land that God had promised to Israel. And it's belonged to the kings of Judah as of the time of the writing of this narrative. And I find this quite remarkable. You know, David is a far cry from Jerusalem where he's supposed to be reigning. And I imagine that at some point as he's way out in the thick lag, middle of nowhere, surrounded by his enemies, he might be thinking to himself, what on, what on earth am I doing here? Why these wasted months? But God was, even in his displacement, advancing the kingdom by granting control of the land that was promised to Israel. What David may have seen as wasted years or months were actually fruitful ones. Perhaps you are in currently what seemed to you wasted years, years of displacement, not geographically, but spiritually, or relationship, or, or just your life circumstances are not what you expected them to be. They make no sense to you, and you're wondering why these wasted years? Maybe you're waiting on a spouse, or waiting on a child. You're waiting on some spiritual fruit. You're weary of battling sin and losing. You're waiting on a career change. You're waiting on a, a certain relationship to be restored. Whatever it is, we all know these years that we consider wasted years, but what if actually these years are ones in which the kingdom is advancing in our lives and we just can't see it? And by that, I don't mean that all of our circumstances are working out exactly like we want them to, but that God is doing something good even if we can't see it. Years ago, a friend and I were talking to a college professor about this exact thing, about you know, how to handle frustration of not knowing where life is heading, and and, how to, you know, uh, and and how to know what to do, what's next, and just wanting everything to just line up perfectly, as 20-year-olds in college expect life to be. And he told us, for, uh, he told us about how for so long he had wanted to be a missionary and a Bible teacher, but, you know, he, he, had a, he had a family, and he needed to provide for them, and the timing just wasn't right. The opportunity wasn't there, and so he became a banker, and for about 10 years, he was a banker, and so often, he would think during those years, what am I doing here? This is so useless. This is so far from my calling. Well, eventually, an opportunity came to come on staff at a Bible college outside of Athens, Greece. And they needed somebody who could handle the finances as well as do some teaching. And here was a banker with 10 years experience and a seminary degree. God was preparing him to join the school. And he summed up the story in this short motto for us, which is this, that in God's economy, nothing is wasted. In God's economy, nothing is wasted. That is, God uses everything. He uses everything. All the seasons, all the ups and downs, the disappointments, the failures, the trials, all of them, God weaves into the story that he is writing. And we don't always see how these things get used. Sometimes we get glimpses, a lot of times we don't. But the promise is that they are used. Romans 8 tells us this. And we know, we know. That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That is, God is accomplishing his purposes in all things. Even the disappointments of our lives. And so I would encourage you, if you feel like you are living or have lived wasted years, to see them differently than that. To believe that God uses everything, that what you thought were wasted years may in fact have been sowing years for a harvest yet to come. Maybe God was preparing you then for something that you haven't even yet come to, but you will see it. Or perhaps you won't. You won't. But God has, God's word is true. He works all things together for good. So we're learning about the durability of God's kingdom, how even in dark days, God's kingdom is advancing. It advances despite our faithlessness, it it advances despite our our, our displacement and even in our disappointments, and finally, it advances despite our vulnerabilities. It advances despite our vulnerabilities. The third way in this story in which the kingdom of Israel advances is through the defeat of some of their enemies, even while David is in this fairly vulnerable position. That's what's going on in this series of raids in the last paragraph of of our passage. You know, at first blush, it could seem like David is just killing and lying, killing and lying. He seems just very violent and greedy. Um, and that he's taking all this plunder for himself, but that's actually not what's going on here. Although he is lying to uh, the king, uh, to King Achish. Uh, he you know he's saying he's raiding these Israelite territories when actually he's raiding enemy territories. Even though he's lying, he is in the raids doing uh, He's he's uh, obeying the Torah, the law of God. So way back in Deuteronomy 20 and 25, the Lord commanded Israel to eliminate the pagan nations that were inhabiting the promised land. And this was, uh, in, in one sense, judgment on these evil nations. You know, they were doing wicked things, and God had in his mind to, to punish these, these, uh, these tribes and these territories as, as he gave the land to Israel. And so the Israelites, when they enter into the promised land, in the book of Joshua, they have a job to do, and that's to cleanse the land of these pagan nations. And although they were largely successful in this, it was still a job undone. And in particular, it was a job in which Saul was failing at. You know, his duty as king is to drive out Israel's enemies and to enact just, justice on them. But he's so busy pursuing David that he's neglected God's command to expel Israel from the land. And so in this sense, David is actually acting admirably here in that he's fulfilling the Torah, commanded to do, uh, the Torah in the command to devote these nations to destruction so that God's people would not intermingle with them and begin worshiping their gods. And so, once again, we see that in this time away in in Ziklag, on the fringes of this country side, the kingdom is advancing. And the the reason I say that this is despite our vulnerabilities, because David actually seems quite strong here in all the raids, the reason I say this is that he's actually still fairly surrounded by his enemies. You know, Back in Israel, he's running from Saul, so he can't go, can't go there. In nearby Gath, he's got King Achish. Oh, keep an eye on him. And then he's, still, he's surrounded by these enemies. You know, David is not at ease here. And yet, God has granted him the perfect conditions to be set free from Saul and free from Achish's watchful eyes so that he can expel his enemies while simultaneously gaining favor with Achish. And so even though... And this is the main takeaway of this section. Even though David is, in one sense, surrounded by his enemies, in another sense, he is hemmed in by God. And you can see God's hand guiding and protecting his life, even while bringing justice against these wicked nations. And I think a lot of us exp- believe that for things to be going well in our lives, the protection the conditions need to be pristine, you know, things need to be just so. You know, if, we, if, if our enemies would leave us alone, if trial would depart from us, if we could stop struggling with such and such a sin, then, you know, we could get on with the work, we could do the will of God, and, we, and things would be as they were meant to be if the headwinds would just stop driving at us. But actually, this is almost never the case in scripture. Time and time again, the kingdom moves forward by God getting his people out of a tight spot of making a way for them where there's, when their backs are against the wall. You know, the promise of progeny for Abraham rested on a woman in her 90s getting pregnant. Or when the Israelites were fleeing from Egypt and they get caught between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. Or when they come into the Promised Land and they're fighting giants and armies ten times their size. And all of these things, they're actually quite vulnerable and limited Dependent, the conditions in their eyes are not ideal for victory. But that is where God acted. It's how He does things. Even in our vulnerabilities, the kingdom is advancing. So that we know that the power belongs not to us but to God. God is using your frailty. God is using your unideal circumstances though you may not at this time see how. And so we come to the end of our text, and we see that the kingdom has advanced even through David's faithlessness and displacement and vulnerabilities, that God has used the time and circumstances to protect Israel's king, to secure more land for Israel, and to expand that land by purging Israel's enemies in the surrounding territories. Even in these dark days for David, the kingdom was advancing. And there's no better place where we see God's kingdom advancing in dark days than at the cross of Christ. There, the kingdom advanced through faithlessness. Not Jesus' faithlessness, of course, but ours. It was the faithlessness of Israel that led them to crucify their own Messiah. And so he becomes the sacrificial lamb for his people and indeed all who believe in him. In the people's faithlessness, God remained faithful and even used their faithlessness to accomplish his purposes. There at the cross, the kingdom advanced through displacement. Our Lord was crucified outside the camp like one rejected by God, stricken and afflicted. In Jesus' own words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's putting the words of the derelict King David on his lips, saying, I identify with that feeling of being surrounded by enemies, seemingly left alone by God. And there, God is working out his purposes. There at the cross, the kingdom advanced through vulnerability. Jesus is suffocating on the cross. He's surrounded by his enemies. He's being mocked. Our Lord has known weakness. He entered weakness to accomplish the purposes of God in our salvation. God's crowning work of salvation happened on a dark day the darkest day. And in the darkness, Christ remained for three days. And even then, the kingdom was advancing. And then the darkness ended, and Christ emerged from the dark tomb, and light entered in. And in Jesus' resurrection, we see God achieve the same things that he did for David in this passage, but in their full and everlasting form. What does God do in the resurrection? He secures for us an everlasting king. He secures for us a land, a place in the new heavens and the new earth, where by our participation in the resurrected and ascended one, we have a place to go, land, forever. And he gives victory over our enemies of sin and death and Satan. And so those who are in Christ stand in an everlasting and durable kingdom. It cannot be shaken. It cannot be thwarted. It cannot be swallowed by darkness. Because Christ has overcome the darkness. Darkness is swallowed up in the resurrection of Christ. And so if you are in Christ, the dark days are for you, a trial to endure. They are not the end. And so here I want to land with some application. Namely two things. The first is, I encourage you to learn to look beyond your life with confidence. Look beyond your life with confidence. By this I mean, you need to know that if you are in Christ, you are part of something much bigger than your life, and bigger than your circumstances, and more lasting than your circumstances. And that's something the kingdom of God will not fail. It won't. And in fact, your life is caught up in that kingdom. Such that to look around at the circumstances of your life and to say, I know God's kingdom is advancing if things are going well for me, is not true. Rather, you can now say, even as you look around your life and see that things are not what you want them to be, you can know the kingdom is advancing. God is doing work in me. God's doing work in others. God is doing work everywhere, all the time, because he's promised that he would. And his purposes are he accomplishes his purposes and his promises are true. Your dark days could persist until the Lord calls you home. But the gift of the durable kingdom is that someday you will inherit it. and You will enjoy its splendor and you will know joy and gladness. You will. The second point of application I urge for you is that you learn to look upon your life with curiosity. Learn to look upon your life with curiosity. That is, learn to wonder what may be happening in your dark days that you cannot see. Learn to look and to ask, what good may be happening? What good can I participate in? Like David's little raids, or raids in his time at Ziglag. Well, life is not what I want it to be. Maybe this is the season where you learn patience. Maybe this is the season where you learn humility. Maybe this is the season where you learn repentance. Maybe something is happening beneath the surface of your heart that you cannot imagine. You know, we are about to enter, or we are descending into the darkest days of the year. The days are getting shorter, temperatures lower, Many of our trees are are bare at this point. When you look from the ground up, things look pretty bleak and lifeless and dead. But beneath the surface, you know, these trees are doing hard work. They're storing up nutrients, the roots are advancing deeper into the earth so that the tree grows stronger, so that it puts forth leaves and fruit in the proper season. I think for many of us, that's what's happening in our dark days. What seem to us, empty and lifeless days, or years, or actually growing years, rooting years. Be curious. Be expectant. Be hopeful. God is doing work in your dark days, even if you can't see it. Let me close with this. I've been listening to this song lately, and the chorus has this line, I think the song's about depression, and the the chorus has this line, a new day starts in the dark. A new day starts in the dark. It's simple, but hopeful. The darkness is not forever. Eventually, night gives way to day. That's how it works. Things will change. And I don't know what dark days you are in, or what dark days are ahead, or what dark days are behind you but still haunt you.
1: But I know this
0: that for those who are in Christ, you are not simply waiting for better days. God is doing something good even in the dark days. And at the proper time, a new day will appear. A new day will appear. It is promised. It is coming. It is fixed. So until that day, hope. Hope in the sure promises of God that his kingdom has no end, that his kingdom is full of joy, and it's his good pleasure to give it to you. So stand, seek the Lord, be surprised at what he may be doing in your life. Let's pray. Father, you love us so dearly. And you are so good to us and you are so powerful. And your ways are mysterious. The how is mysterious. But the what you have made clear to us that you are building your church, that you are forming us in Christ's likeness, that you are with us, that goodness and mercy follow us all our days and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, that you are doing things that we cannot see. And so, give us faith and hope, expectancy. Thank you that you've secured for us an everlasting kingdom in Christ Jesus. Help us to be faithful. To endure our hard and dark days with love and with hope and in good works. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.